Well, it's my privilege again to stand before you tonight this week. Um, appreciate Brother Clayton entrusting me with the, with the pulpit. Uh, if you would be finding your way to 2 Samuel chapter 11. That is in the Old Testament. You'll find the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles all there together. So if you find one of those, you're in the right area. 2 Samuel chapter 11. All right. And let's, let's pray as we begin this evening. Father, as we go to open your word tonight, I pray that you will bless this time together we have in study. I pray that you would rest my heart and my mind that I may communicate clearly what you'd have us to hear. Father, I pray that your message will be taken to heart and applied to each and every life here tonight. And thank you, Father, that you still speak to us, that you've given us your word, that we may know what you would have us do. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're just going to step through it. I'm not going to um, have you stand or anything. We're just going to go through a few verses at a time. Um, have you ever have you ever found yourself at the wrong place at the wrong time? I hope some of you aren't thinking that right now. Um, if you've ever been in an accident, if you've ever um, been in a wreck, you know, hey, I might have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or how many times have you seen a wreck ahead of you and think, well, if I had left just a few minutes sooner or been a little bit later, you know, that could have, could have been me, or thankfully I avoided that. Well, sometimes we'll find ourselves in bad situations through no conscious decision of our own, and it's not necessarily that we're doing something wrong, we just find ourselves there, and we're not always doing what we should. So tonight, as we look here in, in 2 Samuel, I want us to consider the king who stayed home. Beginning in verse 1, it says, It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. David was supposed to be going out to battle. It was the time of year that kings went to battle. I read somewhere, I don't know if this is the case or not, but it sounds good to me, that the month March is named for the Greek god of war, Mars. Because, and they named it that month in the spring of the year because that's when people went to war. So this could have been March of the year, we're not sure. But it was springtime, kings were supposed to be going out, but David instead sent his commander-in-chief Joab out uh, with the army and all the able-bodied men in Israel, and he stayed at home. Why did he stay home? I don't know, but I'm sure being at home in the palace in Jerusalem was much more comfortable and much more safe than being out sleeping under the stars on the battlefield. Don't know if that's why he stayed or if it was just negligence or laziness or what. We don't know. Verse 2, 
Then it happened. Notice in verse 1 we had it happened. Now then it happened. One evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Notice one evening he arose from his bed. Now maybe he couldn't sleep that night. He may have laid around in the bed all day and didn't get up till evening. Don't know that either. It's possible that it was a warm time of the year, again being spring, and that could be why Bathsheba was bathing on the roof. Maybe it was too hot in her home. She was trying to find somewhere cooler. David was walking outside on the roof trying to find a cooler place. We're not sure, but we know that, as the scripture says, it happened. Um, and it just so happened, the two of them crossed paths. David saw her bathing on the roof. Now, from what I understand, David wasn't a biologist, but he knew a woman when he saw one, unlike some folks today. And he committed adultery of the heart and coveted after another man's wife. You know, as king, he had everything, but it wasn't enough. We see that a lot today, don't we? People that have so much, but they got to have just a little bit more. Verses 3 through 5, so David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. It says Bathsheba, she was the daughter of Eliam. Uh, in Second um, Samuel 23, there's the list of David's mighty men, and there is an Eliam listed among these. This could have been one of David's great soldiers that Bathsheba was the daughter of. I uh, don't remember the reference, but Eliam was also, I believe, the son of one of David's advisors. So Bathsheba was most likely from a royal um, noble line, uh, a well-to-do family, if you will. Uh, Uriah was also in this list of mighty men. So um, one of David's trusted soldiers. David had Bathsheba brought to the palace and his adultery of the heart was physically acted out. I do want to note here, and at first I thought, well, why did, why is this included in scripture? It says that Bathsheba was cleansed from her impurity. Okay, what the scripture's saying here is Bathsheba could not have already been pregnant. Again, I'm not a biologist, I'm not going into all that. She could not have been pregnant, and she was at a time that she was more able to conceive. So that's why that is included here in the scripture. Then she sends back word to David that she is with child. There was no doubt that this had to be David's child. It could not have been Uriah's from before uh, he left to go 
to war. Verses 6 and 7, Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. So David brings Uriah from the battlefront where David should have been. He wasn't. He brought uh, Uriah back and started making small talk. You know, how's the war going? How's Joab? And, um, and things of this nature. Then going into verse 8. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Why did you not come, or did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk, and at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So here's the plot being hatched. David was going to try to make it look like Uriah was the father of this ill-conceived child. In his mind, the sin would be covered, Everyone would think Bathsheba's child was Uriah's and no one would be the wiser, or so he thought. But Uriah, as long as his brethren in arms were at battle, he refused the comfortable pleasures of home. So the plan backfired. He refused to go to his home uh, while the others were at war. Continuing in 14, it says, In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where they knew uh, were the valiant men, or where that he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. So David knew the plan had failed. He had tried, he had, he had sinned with Bathsheba. He brought Uriah back from the battle, tried to stage it to make it look like Uriah was the father of the child. And Uriah was more noble than David, and so the plan failed. So... The soldier who was loyal to his king, one of his mighty men who would do anything for his king, then carried his death sentence back to the front lines to Joab. He didn't know what the letter said. He just did his duty and carried it. 
and he was carrying his own death sentence. His crime, his crime was unknowingly being in the way of David's sinful desires. Now you notice um, Uriah wasn't the only one who died in battle. If Joab had pulled everyone back except Uriah, it would have looked suspicious. And in, if Uriah was the only one killed in battle, one of the commanders, one of the great men, well, now this would have been a little fishy. So to help David cover this up further, other people had to die in this battle. So see, this is just getting worse and worse the deeper we're going. Other soldiers had to die to help cover David's sin. Now in verses 18 through 24, for uh, sake of time, I'm not going to read those, but this is Joab's instructions to the messenger and in the messenger's report to David. He goes and tells uh, David, you know, we were defeated in battle, many soldiers died, Uriah was among them, and uh, that's the message that was delivered. So picking up in verse 25, after hearing the report, then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So David hears of what happens. He's not outraged. He's not upset. He more or less just says, well, these things happen. Very nonchalantly. He had hardened his heart. Not only had he hardened his heart against God, but he became very uncompassionate. Bathsheba did mourn her husband and following the period of mourning was brought to David to be one of his wife and bore uh, the child that had been conceived to them. Now those that did not know what was going on may have seen this as an act of kindness. Here you had the king who one of his top soldiers dies in battle, leaves a widow, and in the culture, of course the king had many wives that, that did not necessarily please God. He was, God says marriage is between one man, one woman, uh, as long as life continues. But culturally, had many wives, so I think, well, David, he's, he's really doing a good thing. This, this woman's no longer provided for, and he's bringing her into his house um, out, of, out of kindness, out of a, uh, an act of kindness. But what was really going on was this was more of the cover-up being played out. We see that at the end of verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now what displeased the Lord? It was, was it the fact that he brought uh, Bathsheba to be um, his wife? Because that's what it says after um, bringing her into his house and she becoming his wife and, and her bearing him a son. The thing that had done displeased the Lord. No, God had been displeased early on. 
when he did not, when David did not go out to battle, when he was not in the place he was supposed to be, God was not happy then. But our God is long-suffering. And this continued. And though the sin had been hidden from men, it was an open scandal in heaven. I'm sure the, the angels were seeing this, if angels are privy to such things, were, were seeing man after God's own heart, breaking the heart of God, doing, doing all these things. So how was God now going to deal with David's sin? He had promised David to keep him on the throne of Israel until an old age. So how was he going to deal with him? We're going to see that here in uh, chapter 12. The first four verses says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in the city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So Nathan uses, uses a parable. He does not directly confront the king. If he had, um, Nathan could have been dismissed from the, the throne room or he could have been thrown into prison or maybe something worse. But Nathan comes in, he uses a parable. And notice he uses a parable about sheep. Well, David grew up a shepherd so he could identify with this story that Nathan was telling him. Uh, verses 5 and 6, So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. In Exodus 22.1, where it talks about the different laws of, the, uh, of God's people, the proper restitution for when a sheep is stolen and killed is four to replace the one. So David is, is showing his knowledge of the law that, that he should be restored fourfold for the lamb. But then David tacks on the death penalty as well because he shows that this man has no pity. In verse 7, we see probably one of the most stern, most convicting, strongest statements in all of Scripture. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. You are the man. This parable 
Nathan brought him. David didn't see it coming that this was, was what God was using to convict him. You know, God had been so good. He had anointed the smallest of Jesse's house to be the king. That, that's David. He was the smallest of, of his brothers. When he was a shepherd, he protected David. It, the Bible tells us he fought off uh, wild animals with his bare hands. Um, after David had been anointed the next king of Israel, God protected him from King Saul. He had done all these things for David up to and giving him the throne and then blessed him with all the riches and wonderment of being the king. But David took advantage of his kingship to get what he wanted. You know, I don't believe many other people could have sat back and said, this is what I want, go get it for me. And then when they find out they're in trouble, they have other people help them cover up. He abused his office because of his sin. And you'll notice also, um, the only time that we see God's name mentioned is in uh, chapter 11 at the very end when it says this thing had displeased the Lord. David had not consulted God about any of this that he had done. He was doing this on his own and for his own pleasure. Uh, continuing into verse 10 of chapter 12. Let's see. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken your, the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. David's dynasty was great. He and Solomon were the, the greatest kings that Israel ever had, but can you imagine how much greater it could have been? God said the sword would never depart from his house. He would be plagued with intrigue and espionage among his own children. Um, and it would result, following the death of Solomon, in a divided kingdom. All these things that David had wanted and worked for was going to be stripped away from him, stripped away from his family, all because of this one sin. See, David got what he wanted in Bathsheba, but he had to pay a price much higher than he expected to pay. These things, it says, were done in secret, but God would do these things before the sun. Do not be deceived, your sin will find you out. In Luke 12, Jesus said that all things done or spoken in darkness will be brought to light. That's where I have to be sure and remind myself, be careful what I think, what I say, what I do, because what I think is hidden is not hidden. Everything, of course, is before God, but it will all be brought to light. Verse 13, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David's convicted of what he's done. 
God used Nathan to get through to him, to show him what he's done. His temptation led to lust. His lust led to covetousness. His covetousness to theft, theft of another man's wife, which led to adultery, to deception, to murder, and to complacency. I've often heard it said, sin will take you further than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay. You know, I feel like David, he didn't, he never intended for this series of events to happen. But he stayed home, he wasn't where he was supposed to be, and then one thing snowballed into another. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. So David is forgiven. And he would not, God would not put David to death. Because remember, David has promised to stay on the throne and died in old age. But let's see what the, the consequences are here in verses 14 and 15. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. So David was forgiven, but he would have to face the consequences. The best way I can relate this is if a person commits first-degree murder, he can stand before the judge, throw himself on the mercy of the court, and say, Judge, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do this. I, I'm Please, I'm sorry. And look at the person's family say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? There can be forgiveness, but that individual will still go to jail and pay the fine, the sentence that goes along with the crime. We find that in our own lives. We, too, will be forgiven of our sins, but the consequences remain. It says that what David did caused the, the enemy, gave them occasion to blaspheme the Lord. See, the things that we do speak volumes to the world around us about God. Here was the king of Israel, the king of Yahweh's people, committing these heinous crimes. What was his action saying to the Gentiles around him about Israel's God? This was supposed to be the A number one man in the nation of God's people. And his actions caused the nations around them to blaspheme the true God. Sometimes I feel like we as the the church are under a microscope. The church and Christians both. The world's watching us. Now sometimes they have um, unrealistic, unbiblical ideas about what the church is about, what Christianity is about, what Christians are about. But at the same time, they're watching. Look at uh, all the, the pastors, even Southern Baptist pastors who have been caught in scandal recently. Look at um, 
false churches such as Westboro Baptist Church. That's not really a church. They're just out stirring up trouble. What does that say about us? The unsaved world blasphemes our God because they think, well, this is what our God's about. We have to be careful what we're doing. If someone were to ask your neighbors about the God you serve, what would they say based solely on your actions, your reactions, your day-to-day life? If we were to ask your family about the God you serve, what would they say? That's a wake-up call to me because what I say, do, think reflects the God that I serve. Further consequence would be that this child born to David in Bathsheba would die. And that's really sad because it's not the, it wasn't the child's fault. And you can read the account of that on into the rest of chapter 12. We're not going into that tonight, but, but it's really heart-wrenching. And, and David suffered through that time of his child dying. But there would be redemption. David and Bathsheba would later be the parents of Solomon. You know, had this bad situation, God did not depart from Israel, did not depart from David. He continued to bless once the sin was repented of. And the greatest, most wise king of them all, Solomon, came from David and Bathsheba later on. David, the man after God's own heart, broke the heart of God. Bible scholars say that during this period of his sin with Bathsheba, that David did not compose any psalms. His heart was so far away from God that he couldn't couldn't sit down with his harp and, and write the music that he had been writing. He was caught up in what he was doing. But after Nathan confronts David, he writes Psalm 51 in response. Let me just tell you a little aside. This message tonight was supposed to have been a stepping through of Psalm 51. And as I studied and studied the background leading up to it, David's sin with Bathsheba, God changed where I was speaking from tonight. He moved me back here to speak on this. So I'll have to save that psalm for another time. But in verse 12, David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. See, all through the psalm, David is is confessing and repenting of his sin and asking for forgiveness. But he had gotten so far away from God that he had lost his joy. No sin can, can make us lose our salvation, but it can strip our joy away from us. There are sometimes situations or actions of other people that can steal our joy. And I can't help but wonder, if God is the only giver of joy, if our true joy only comes from salvation, now notice I'm saying joy and not happiness, We're talking about two different things. Our joy, if that's only coming from God, why do we allow Satan to take it away? 
But we do, don't we? Now, our joy, does it really go anywhere? No. We just sort of beat it down. And just like we've got all the Holy Spirit we're ever going to have, but sometimes there's too much of us in the way of the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the early Christians, before they were called Christians, they were called people of the way. If we're not careful, sometimes we'll be people in the way of what God's wanting to do in and through us. Let's be sure we're of the way and not in the way. Happiness is situational, but our joy should never waver. In all situations, we talked about in our uh, Sunday school lesson this morning about persecution. And we see so many around the world, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are being persecuted. More died for their faith in the 20th century than in the previous 19th centuries put together. But we know when it comes to us, and it, it's coming, we can, we can see it shifting that way in America. We, we may not be happy about it. I'm not looking forward to it. But because we have hope in Christ, because we know that if we're persecuted, we're being treated the same way that Jesus was treated. We're hated for his sake. That we know that if we're martyred, if we're killed for our faith, that we will spend eternity with heaven. We can keep our joy. We can be joyful in the storm. Have you lost your joy? Do you have, like David, an unrepentant sin in your life that you need to confess? Is there a hidden sin that God is convicting you tonight? Maybe there's someone here or listening by radio or internet that has never experienced the joy of salvation. It's not something you can fake. Even if you could, it wouldn't last. But tonight, you can come to know that joy. Repent of your sin and ask Jesus to be your Savior. Trust Him to save you. It occurred to me as I was studying this message King David stayed home, but our King Jesus didn't. He left his home in heaven. He came to earth to live a perfect life and to die a substitutionary death. Galatians 4 says that Jesus came to earth in the fullness of time. You know what that means, the fullness of time? He was here at the right place at the right time. God's timing is perfect. It always has been. It always will be. You may be in a bad place right now. And I don't mean physically here. I mean, but in your, in your spiritual walk, you may be finding yourself further from God than you've been before. That's why I asked you tonight if there's something you need to confess it's, it's hard sometimes to own up to what we know is, is wrong in our lives. And 
Uh, we think, well, nobody else knows about it, but God knows it, and it'll stand in the way of a deeper relationship with Him. So I'm going to pray, and it's, it's tonight as we have our invitation. Uh, as always, you don't have to say a word to me, but you can come and pray. You can pray where you're at. But if there's something you need to do business with God with, please take care of that tonight. If there's someone who needs to be saved, there's no better time than right now. You're at the right place at the right time for that. So let's pray and then we'll sing. Our God, I pray that you will use my feeble words tonight to, to stir our hearts, to examine ourselves that anything that's standing in the way of our closer walk with you that we would confess and get on our knees and say, God, I'm sorry that I want to return to you fully. I pray if there's anyone here, anyone listening that needs a Savior, God, I pray that you stir them tonight to make that decision to be freed from their sin and to enter into your joy. And I pray for anyone who has lost that joy, God, that you would restore it to us, that we would experience the joy of your salvation once again. We love you and thank you, in Jesus' name.